So today's lecture is on Richard III, a history play from the beginning of Shakespeare's career, probably dating from 1591 to 2, and a play which is a huge success in print, probably the largest success of a play by Shakespeare in print. Six editions in quarto, quarto those small single play uh, books, six editions in quarto uh, before the first folio text of 1623. So probably the most popular play of Shakespeare's uh, in print, um, but of course the most, by far the most popular work of Shakespeare's in print in this period is actually Venus and Adonis. It's not a play at all. Uh, if the Elizabethans had been asked about uh, Shakespeare the writer, they would have talked about Shakespeare the poet, the poet of Venus and Adonis. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the difference in the texts, the difference between the quarto uh, the quarto texts and the folio and the way they might be interesting for the way we interpret the play uh, a bit later on. But first, uh, let's start with the question that I posed about the play at the end of last week's lecture. The question that I'm going to try and focus on is, do we want Richmond to win? Do we want Richmond to win? And let's start by uh, putting that in an account of the plot. So the plot of Richard III is a basic rise and fall political narrative. The details are probably less important than the overall shape. And certainly giving a synopsis of a history play plot always makes it sound enormously more complicated uh, than it really is. Uh, essentially, Richard rises and he falls. Richard opens the play as Duke of Gloucester. In fact, he doesn't become king uh, until Act Four. Plots against his brother, King Edward IV, uh, falsely accusing their other brother, George, the Duke of Clarence, of treason. Richard pretends to be uh, friends to Clarence, but in fact sends two assassins to murder him in the Tower of London. And this is part of his overall strategy to eliminate uh, other uh, uh, sort of contenders, other, other political rivals. Richard meets Lady Anne, who is mourning at the coffin of her father-in-law, Henry VI. <coughs> not her husband, which you might think if you watch the McKellen film, where it is her husband, but it's a bit of a giveaway that you've watched the film rather than the play. It's actually her father-in-law, uh, Henry VI, in the play. Uh, she's mourning at the coffin of her father-in-law, who Richard has killed. In a bravura display of persuasion, he persuades Lady Anne to marry him, claiming his murders were prompted by her beauty. He's also uh, married her first husband. Uh, not married, actually murdered. Um, there's a Freudian slip there, clearly. On the death of King Edward, Richard becomes Lord Protector to his young nephew, also called Edward. This is part of the problem, isn't it, with history plays. Richard's mother, the Duchess of York, and old Queen Margaret, who is the widow of Henry VI, both curse him. As Lord Protector, Richard executes his opponents, and with his chief adviser, the Duke of Buckingham, he lodges the young princes in the tower. He and Buckingham manipulate the Lord Mayor of London and the citizens into begging Richard to take the throne. Richard puts on a show of not wanting to and pretending to be unwilling for coronation, but, but, but he's persuaded. Overseas, Richmond is gathering strength from discontented subjects of Richard. Richard reneges on his promise to reward Buckingham, his associate, with an earldom, because Buckingham refuses to countenance the murder of the young princes in the Tower of London. Richard anyway sends Tyrrell to kill the princes, and Buckingham joins Richmond in opposition to Richard. Lady Anne's death allows Richard to propose marriage to Princess Elizabeth. We don't see this in the play. Um, 
the daughter of uh, uh, the former King Edward IV. The Queen pretends to agree to this marriage, but it doesn't, in fact, take place. Richmond lands at Milford Haven, and he marries Elizabeth, uh, the daughter of uh, King Edward IV. On the eve of the battle, Richard is cursed in a dream by the ghosts of all his victims, who then go on to Richmond to bless his enterprise. At Bosworth Field, the battle, Richard is defeated by Richmond in single combat. Richmond is crowned, and he announces he will unite the houses of York and Lancaster and bring peace. So the role of Richmond in the play, which is partly what I'm going to try and focus on, is to be Richard's nemesis, the end of his megalomaniacal progress to the English throne, the end of the Wars of the Roses, the union of the white and red, the end of the long historical fallout from the deposition of Richard II that scars the second half of the 15th century and animates Shakespeare's three plays on the Wars of the Roses, the three parts of Henry VI, plays he's already written and have been performed before Richard III. So Richmond is, 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 the, is the kind of saviour at the end of all this turmoil. How then could we not want him to win? Well, mid-20th century criticism was very clear that in Richmond, Shakespeare presented the idealised solution to the dynastic and political turmoil he had previously dramatised. The standard critic on this is E.M.W. Tilliard. Tilliard. In his uh, Shakespeare's history plays, Tilliard argued that the, these plays were, like other forms of late 16th century historiography in both prose, works like Raphael Hollinshed's Chronicles, which are Shakespeare's main source, but also in verse, things like Samuel Daniel's uh, long poem on the Wars of the Roses, that these, uh, taken together, these historical writings, were um, a, a, a way of consolidating Elizabeth I's rule by providing a historical and a genealogical sanction for the Tudors, the so-called Tudor myth. Richmond's victory at Bosworth Field at the end of Richard III marks the establishment of the Tudor dynasty. He becomes Henry VII, father of Henry VIII, grandfather of Queen Elizabeth. Furthermore, Richmond's victory at Bosworth, establishing the Tudor dynasty, attempts to impose this transfer of sovereignty, uh, not as a usurpation, not as the murder of uh, a reigning king, which in fact it is, but as a deliverance from tyranny. So there are some kind of political problems historically about the way Henry VII comes to the throne, uh, and uh, in part, Tilliard argues, the, the historical writing of this period is an attempt to smooth out those problems. So for Tilliard, and this is an influential argument which still pertains in many critical quarters now, the Tudor myth that was Shakespeare's subject in the history plays reaches its high point in the presentation of Richmond. The providentialist tell us of the history play sequence, the idea that it's all going to an end point where it all works out okay, is completed as Richmond represents reparation and restitution. After a sequence of illegitimate kings following the deposition of Richard II and a period of violent, turbulent civil expiation for this crime, according to Tilliard, Richmond comes to reinstate the tarnished monarchy in the blessed form of the Tudors. For this play, writes Tilliard, 
Shakespeare accepted the prevalent belief that God had guided England into her haven of Tudor prosperity. Shakespeare accepted the prevalent belief that God had guided England into her haven of Tudor prosperity. Now, there are lots of different ways we could challenge this vision of Elizabethan politics, setting aside for a moment the politics of the play itself. For one thing, as we know, the establishment of the Tudors by Henry VII was by no means the end of that dynasty's problems. The struggle for an heir to Henry VIII comes immediately to mind. More immediately, presenting the Tudors as the sanctified antidote to civil war is really rather a backhanded compliment in the early 1590s. Even the most optimistic politicians had given up by that point on the idea that the 50-year-old queen would marry and have an heir. The Tudors were, although nobody could say it at the time, toast. They were a dynasty which had run entirely out of steam and out of heirs. They were a dynasty at the end of its life. So uh, to suggest that the only antidote to civil war, the only peaceful and the only, the only prosperous future for England is with the Tudors is a slightly odd thing to argue uh, in the 1590s. Many more recent critics uh, following and, and uh, articulating themselves against Tilliard and trying to assess how Shakespeare's history plays might intervene into contemporary politics have suggested that in fact their role is to rehearse repressed anxieties about the Elizabethan succession, uh, not to try and um, uh, massage it, uh, massage those anxieties away. So they rehearse these anxieties by showing us different versions of monarchies in decline, different versions of power changing hands. They become documents of political uncertainty, not historical triumph, or perhaps rather they suggest that political certainties are a thing of the past. The turn to history in the culture of the late 16th century can itself be seen as a sign of cultural unconfidence, if you like, a turn to the past rather than a step forward into the future, something a number of commentators were saying about the Oscar shortlist uh, last night, a whole, a whole sequence of historical uh, films uh, suggesting a kind of an anxiety uh, about the present and a comfort or a security uh, in the past. So we could answer our question about Richmond with reference to the historical context of the early 1590s. Can his victory at the end of Richard III really register as the triumphant conclusion to the politics of conflict or does it appear rather as another contingent version of the theatre's appetite for parables of regime change? The disturbing conclusion to Michael Boyd's RSC production in 2007 had Richmond delivering his pious, platitudinous final speech, even as his flak-jacketed troops watched the audience through the sights of their machine guns. Now, we, write, we might relate this point to something about the chronology of Shakespeare's own writing. Shakespeare writes his history plays rather as George Lucas makes the Star Wars films. That's to say, he begins by writing towards an end-of-history moment. For George Lucas, this is Skywalker becoming a fully-fledged Jedi and destroying the Empire. For Shakespeare, it's the victory of Richmond at Bosworth Field. If you know both texts, you can see that they actually share a number of mythemes or plot elements in quite a recognisable way. 
The end of Richard III, that's to say, takes the historical story to a point where there is no possibility or no interest in pursuing it any further. Abate the edge of traitors, gracious lord, prays the godly Richmond, predicting his descendants will enrich the time to come with smooth-faced peace, with smiling plenty and fair, prosperous days. This may indeed be a worthy political aspiration, but it's certainly not a very dramatic one. What both Shakespeare and Lucas do is to pursue their themes, the themes which have been so commercially successful for them, by reverting to an earlier prequel part of the story. After the end, that's to say, we go back to the beginning. The next play is Richard II, the start of that cycle uh, of uh, deposition, expiation and restoration that Tilliard saw as the sequence of the history plays. The next play is then Richard II and the, the two parts of Henry IV return us to an earlier chronological point in the historical story, just as they return us to a world of conflict and embattled sovereignty. In this recurrent schema, in the way the plays work out on the Elizabethan stage, Richmond's victory is provisional and temporary. It's just like the victory at Shrewsbury, which ends Henry IV, part one, or the Battle of Agincourt, which ends Henry V. It concludes an episode, not the whole story. I'm going to come back to the implications that might have for Richard III in a moment. As I've already talked about in lectures on Richard II and on Henry IV, part one, the fashion for performing complete sequences of Shakespeare's history plays is a decidedly 20th century one. There is no evidence from the Shakespearean period that these history plays were seen as serial or episodic in their own time. Rather, I think they were complete, self-standing, dramatic entertainments. Uh, the critic Nicholas Green argues differently in a book which helpfully gives its argument in its title, Shakespeare's Serial History Plays. So if you want to think about an alternative to this view I'm giving you of distinct history plays, uh, Green is the place to go. But the habit of reading them and particularly performing them as a sequence has been cued by their arrangement in the first folio. We've seen here before that the history plays apparently uniquely, since it's very difficult to see any organising principle in the order of plays in the comedy or the tragedy sections, if you look at those and have any bright ideas, you should pass them on, because that's one of the great mysteries about uh, the, the way the folio is put together. Why are the plays in this order? Why is the Tempest first? Why is Cymbeline last? Uh, why are certain plays next to each other? But when we come to the section that's on the history plays, we can see why they've been put in the order they have. They've been put in historical chronological order. Like, like a history book of kings, the earliest one first, King John, uh, the latest one, King Henry VIII, at the end. The titles of the history plays are regularised in the folio to make the sequence work. Uh, Henry IV, part one, Henry IV, part two, uh, Henry VI, parts one, two, and three. All of those plays had uh, slightly different titles uh, when they were printed previously. So the, the history plays are presented in the folio as a serial epic rather than a set of individual plays. It's here and here alone, so after Shakespeare and almost certainly not uh, directed by Shakespeare, Shakespeare doesn't have any uh, influence, I think, in, in the way the first folio looks. Um, it, so it's, it's only here that Richard III takes on the kind of culminatory position in the sequence. Uh, and it's bolstered in that by the very last play in the history section, the collaboration with Fletcher, All is True, or Henry VIII, 
which we might argue picks up the sort of analogical implications of Richmond's Tudor victory at the end of Richard III, so the establishment of the Tudors, with uh, what happens at the end of Henry VIII, which is the baptism of Queen Elizabeth, uh, the infant Queen Elizabeth, and the, 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 um, uh, the sort of prediction of what a great reign she's going to have. So it's this arrangement of the play as the last of a long sequence of historical plays in the folio that gives rise to that providentialist telos, uh, telos meaning end or purpose, from which we get teleology, a kind of narrative which is very much end-driven, driven towards a particular conclusion. So I've been suggesting, I think, that the first folio arrangement of the plays makes Richmond's climactic entry into Richard III overdetermined. It's not only the ending of this play, but the ending of a sequence. But I've also been reminding us that this sequence is a later construction. It's not the experience of the first playgoers. The first folio organisation has prompted, I think, over teleological readings of the play in which Richmond functions as the ultimate figure of resolution, conclusion and future promise. And it's not surprising then that the folio title has the additional information the tragedy of Richard III with the landing of Earl Richmond and the battle at Bosworth Field. We don't know where that additional information comes from uh, for the title. And in fact, I'd never noticed it until I was um, uh, re reproducing it for your, for your handout, which is, probably goes to show that there is plenty to see and notice uh, in, sh in Shakespeare, uh, e even though we feel everything has already been talked about. So we might take a different view of Richard III if we return to its early publications before the folio, those six quartos that I mentioned at the beginning. Like the folio, all six call the play the tragedy of Richard III, the tragedy of Richard III. It's a challenging designation for us because we are still largely wedded to that essentially good but with a tragic flaw model of tragic protagonist which has been shaped for us out of Aristotle's poetics via A.C. Bradley's Shakespearean tragedy. Bradley, like Tilliard, is one of the most influential books in our discipline, one that we can't really escape, no matter how many people and how often we say it's just wrong. But as I've discussed before when I've been talking about Titus Andronicus and other plays, the tragic hero model is quite limited. Uh, even, even Bradley, its great exponent, can only really make it fit uh, four of the uh, dozen or so plays which uh, Shakespeare writes, which are tragedies. Seeing Richard III as a tragedy is less about an ethical judgment on the qualities of its central character and more a simple description of its shape. What we've got here is the decasibus medieval tradition of great figures falling due to the operations of fortune's wheel. The monk's prologue in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales has it, tragedy is a certain story of him that stood in great prosperity and is he fallen out of high degree into misery and endeth unreckedly. Okay, so you can see that that medieval idea is just a structure of high, falling from high to low. It's not a moral or an ethical judgment of any, of any sort. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a structure based on, uh, it's a definition based on structure. One thing we can be sure about in a tragedy is where our focus of interest lies. In the structure of the tragedy of Richard III, we might then say, Richmond is about as interesting as Fortinbras is in Hamlet, i.e. not very. The very fact of being alive at the end of a tragedy is an index of your irrelevance. 
Think about Edgar in King Lear, or Malcolm in Macbeth, or the prince in Romeo and Juliet. Who cares? Let's pursue this just a little bit further to think about the relative time on stage of these protagonists. The part of Richard is a huge one in the Shakespearean canon, and he speaks 32% of the play's lines. 32% of the play's lines. It's the biggest uh, role in Shakespeare outside, uh, apart from Hamlet, 37%. Well above Macbeth, who speaks 29% of his line of, of that play's lines, and Lear, 22% of that play's lines. Okay, so uh, Richard's got 32% of his play, a bit bigger than all the, those other tragic protagonists apart from Hamlet. When I'm quoting this kind of quantitative data, I'm always quoting it from those useful tables in the RSC Shakespeare, edited by Jonathan Bate and Eric Rasmussen. So Richard's at 32% of the play's lines. Richmond, by contrast, speaks 4%. 4%. So it makes him the statistical equivalent of the Prince of Morocco in The Merchant of Venice, the Duke of Cornwall in King Lear, Brabantio in Othello. Richard is in 14 of the play's 22 scenes, I would guess about two and a half hours of stage time. Richard is in three, I reckon about 20 minutes. The implications of this are actually substantial. Shakespeare has done as much as he possibly can to minimise and to downplay Richmond's role. The character of Richmond is not even mentioned until Act 4, when Dorset is sent to join him, and he does not appear on stage until Act 5, Scene 2. This strategy of reduction works. If you read any review, if you Google, for example, uh, the Kevin Spacey production uh, of last year uh, or Michael Boyd's um, uh, uh, three or four years ago with Jonathan Slinger, if you look at reviews of that, you'll, be ve you'll find it very, really, really difficult to find out how Richmond was played. He's never, ever mentioned. In performance, he is the necessary but personally uninteresting person who will speak the dead protagonist's eulogy and whose presence tells us we have come to the end of the play. We know that Shakespeare cannot, in writing history plays, change historical fact. Winners and losers, kings and challengers, appear in his plays as in the historical record, even as he manipulates events, battles and motives, uh, and often collapses them. Henry, Earl of Richmond, did win the Battle of Bosworth Field on the 22nd of August, 1485, killing Richard III to take the throne. The play acknowledges this historical fact, but it does it, I think, quite grudgingly, without any attempt to characterise Richmond, to make him attractive, or to counter suggestions that his own claim to the throne is questionable. It's interesting that uh, Richmond does exactly what Richard had been trying, trying to do, marry uh, the Princess Elizabeth, to secure his claim to the throne. Um, uh, he, he's, he too uh, is a, is a weak, uh, has a weak claim. So this is a play, Richard the Third is a play resolutely about Richard and not Richmond. That means, I think, that we can approach the question of audience sympathies towards Richmond via an analysis of the structure of the play. Richmond's role is, as I said, as nemesis, but it is also as a kind of deus ex machina figure. The deus ex machina is the person, sometimes divine and sometimes human, who comes in, usually unexpectedly, at the end of a play to sort things out. The phrase was originally used by Horace as a negative. Playwrights, he instructed, should not resort to this mechanical trick. 
it's a kind of equivalent of and then I woke up you know it's a kind of throwing your throwing your shrugging your shoulders about how you're going to uh, resolve the things that you've set up fictionally but in Shakespeare's hands it seems that the very inadequacies of this device the Deus Ex Machina device are being used for effect <laughs> Richard's personal charisma in Nietzschean terms his will to power can only be defeated by a historical plot not by a dramatic rival. Richmond is no match for Richard, and therefore only the clunky deus ex machina device can bring about Richard's downfall. The play ends then with whimper, not bang, or with tragic inescapability, rather than with historical competition. Richard Longcrane's film, set in, the, in a 1930s fascist London, with Ian McKellen as Richard, ends with his refusal to be captured in the battlefield, jumping instead in a willed fall into a kind of battle inferno set against the music of Al, Jones, Al Jolson's disconcertingly jaunty I'm sitting on top of the world. It's a disc discordant ending, but one which emphasises Richard's irrepressible will as the kind of ultimate victory over his duller enemies. For this reason, then, I think that the teleological reading of Richard III, in which Richmond is the ultimate and crucial conclusion, is not, for most readers, their experience of the play. Partly because of Richard's own personal dominance, and partly because the play insists upon a kind of nostalgic or recursive memorial structure. It's always looking backwards rather than forwards. This is not a play whose momentum is largely uh, forward. And I want to argue uh, in the next part of the lecture that, in fact, it's a kind of anti-teleological play. Uh, instead of trying to get to its ending, it's trying desperately to kind of pedal back. It's, uh, it's like trying to go the wrong way up an escalator. Um, so there's a kind of stasis ab about that. It's trying to resist the movement. Let's think first about Richard's own personal dominance in the play. We've already quantified that in terms of the high proportion of lines he speaks. But it's interesting to notice that this play has been identified as the first major collaboration between Shakespeare and his leading actor, Richard Burbage. The first of Shakespeare's plays, we might say, that is, that is distinctly for a star actor, not, as the previous plays, an ensemble. But let's dig a bit deeper. Richard is the only one of Shakespeare's major characters to begin his own play. You'll recall that Shakespeare's usual method is more oblique, we tend to come into plays via marginal characters who are describing something which has just happened or is about to happen in the main part of the plot. Here, the opening direction is enter Gloucester Solus. Solus alone makes it clear that he does not only open the play, he does so in soliloquy. No other play by Shakespeare does this. No other play begins with a, a soliloquy in this way. Therefore, he begins by addressing the audience. I've talked in my lecture on Othello how very difficult it is for us to avoid a kind of conspiracy with Iago given his matiness towards us and the concurrent difficulty of forging any empathy with the distant and grandiloquent Othello. Something similar happens in Richard III and indeed some of Iago's demonic charm recalls this earlier character. In Richard III a stream of asides and sardonic remarks throughout serve to consolidate this initial alliance we make with Richard through his opening soliloquy. Richard is also funny, more like the medieval vice character uh, with uh, whom he compares himself. Richard's opening speech 
is itself striking. We can see that the famous line which opens the play, now is the winter of our discontent, begins decisively with an inverted metrical foot. The stress is on now, the first syllable, not, as regular iambic pentameter would have it, on the second, now is the winter of our discontent. The contrast between the turbulent maelstrom of competing interests in the Henry VI plays, where no one is able to assert any control over events, is striking. Richard seizes his own play by the scruff of the neck right from the start. And if we look at the history of performances of this play, thinking perhaps particularly about this, a spiderish representation by Anthony Sher, for instance, it seems that it is almost impossible for the Richard character to overact. The histrionic quality of his deformed and manic self-presentation is intrinsic to the part. It is an over-the-top and overacted kind of hyperbolic role. Subtlety is not part of Richard's armory. Excess is the keynote from that first long opening soliloquy. Part of the relish of his role for Richard is its opportunity for self-conscious role-playing. His cues to Buckingham in his appearance before the Lord Mayor and citizens when he's playing the part of a devout hermit between two bishops is a good example of his actually delight. Richard's personality is a series of roles rather than an identity. The broken, jerky soliloquy as he wakes from his ghost-haunted sleep at the end of the play uh, gives us a good example of this fractured self uh, kind of fretting around an absent centre. I am a villain, yet I lie. I am not. I'm a villain, yet I lie. I am not. The second I am may refer back to the first clause. I'm not a villain but it might also stand alone, a kind of self statement of self-cancellation, I am not. Throughout, Richard's manic energy is irresistible. In the second scene of the play, he woos Lady Anne, mourning her father-in-law, Henry VI, telling her that he murdered both her, the dead king and her husband. The scene is a really difficult one to pull off. You can watch a number of filmed versions by Olivier and by McKellen and others on YouTube to see just how difficult, in fact, it is to make it uh, convincing. If it does work, it works by making Lady Anne feel she is complicit in, even culpable for, Richard's behaviour. I did kill King Henry, says Richard, but was thy beauty that provoked me. T'was I that stabbed young Edward, but t'was thy heavenly face that set me on. Richard gives Anne the chance to kill him, and the only alternative is to accede to him. She cannot do the first, so she has to do the second. The cost of submitting to Richard's rhetorical railroading in this scene is that she hardly speaks again in the entire play. This, I think, is because she has served her purpose. The scene, as I say, which is only the second in the play, must be, I think, an allegory for the audience's own reaction to Richard. As such, it's interesting to compare it with a comparable scene in Marlowe's Tamburlaine, where Tamburlaine woos Xenocrity. As the most extreme and circumstantially unsympathetic person with regard to Richard, audience, uh, sorry, Anne plays the role of the audience, deciding whether to take up Richard or to turn against him. Like her, we choose him. Even as we laugh at his epigrammatic, I'll have her, but I will not keep her long, we have, like her, 
entered into a masochistic compact with this charismatic, alluring protagonist. Part of the audience's role in relation to Richard, I think, is encapsulated in this enchanted <coughs> revulsion, which is quite interestingly, according to the play, feminised. It's striking that this most violent of plays focuses itself on acts of rhetoric, like this one, like the wooing of Lady Anne, not acts of murder. It, in that it's more obviously Senecan, owing a debt to the Roman tragedian Seneca, than the bloody plays, Elizabethan plays, would tend to identify under that heading. Senecan violence was always reported, not staged. The revenge play structure that is faintly visible in the action uh, in the cycle of action and retribution in Richard III is not, as we might expect, accompanied by revenge play gore. If we compare the play with Kid's Spanish Tragedy, for instance, or with Titus Andronicus, we can see the significance of the fact that the deaths happen off stage, sinisterly by diktat, but not bloodily before our eyes. Even the death of Clarence is shifted off stage, although we do see the terrifying build-up. The horrors of the quarto title page, the long quarto title is The Tragedy of King Richard III <coughs> Containing His Treacherous Plots Against His Brother Clarence, The Pitiful Murder of His Most Innocent Nephews, His Tyrannical Usurpation with the Whole Course of His Detested Life and Most Deserved Death. These horrors are misleading in their emphasis. And it's also really striking to me that the one piece of information about the play that the folio gives us, that it ends with Richmond and the Battle of Bosworth, is, is completely absent uh, from this quarto title page. That's not an interesting part of the play uh, in its quarto publication. But the effect of this displacement of physical violence, like the em play's emphasis on performative speech acts like curses, is to put Richard's rhetorical charisma centre stage and to make this a play about verbal rather than violent interaction. While Lady Anne cannot in this scene resist Richard, another chorus of women in the play can. Shakespeare has amplified the role of women in this play in sharp contrast to the later history plays. And so if you're interested in female characters, the Henry VI plays and this one offer some compelling examples. Richard III gives us Richard's mother, the Duke of York, the Queen Elizabeth, wife to Edward IV, and additionally Queen Margaret, the widow of Henry VI. Margaret's presence in particular is decidedly ahistorical. The real Queen Margaret died in France, having been taken prisoner after the death of her husband. So Shakespeare has revivified her, brought her back as a kind of deliberate memory of the past, the past in particular of his own his Henry VI plays in which he's a prominent character. And as such is one of the structural features of the play that is constantly dragging it backwards, away from teleology towards uh, uh, recollection. This backwards momentum, this anti-teleology, is one of the most significant roles for the women in the play. Established as mourners for the dead, uh, who have suffered for Richard's rise and in the civil strife that created him, their speeches are always full of recollection and remembrance. So they do very little to move the, move the play forward or to talk about the future. What they do is to intervene to bring the past back into the play. At her first entrance, Margaret reminds Richard 
and us of his previous actions. Out, devil, I do remember them too well. Thou killedst my husband, Henry, in the tower, and Edward, my poor son, at Tewkesbury. In the Kevin Spacey production, part of her role was to mark deaths with chalk crosses on doors on the stage, taking up the role of witness and recorder. <coughs> in the text, Richard responds in kind, in all which time you were factious for the House of Lancaster. Let me put that in your minds if you forget what you have been ere this and what you are with all what I have been and what I am. In part, the struggle between Richard and the female chorus in the play is a struggle over the historical past and who has the right to tell of that past. The role of historian in the play is a vexed one. Different characters make their case for the remembrance of different events and tell the story of the past in a different way. This indicative encounter that I've just quoted then between Richard and Margaret therefore takes on something of a metatheatrical quality about the play itself as a version of history. Tudor historians since Sir Thomas More, writing under Richmond's son Henry VIII, had worked to demonise Richard III, and Shakespeare's Richard embraces this vision enthusiastically. I am determined to prove a villain, he declares in his opening soliloquy. I am determined to prove a villain. <coughs> the line is double-edged. Determined has the dual meaning both of human agency, I am determined that I will do this, and of cosmic direction, it has been determined that you will do this. The question of whether Richard does determine his own fate or has it determined for him echoes throughout the play, just as his physical deformity act both as cause and symptom of his moral character. Moore's The History of Richard III, written around 1513, is a really interesting source to look at for Richard III, not least because it's an unfinished work and thus deals only with Richard's rise to the throne, the part of the story that I've been arguing Shakespeare also finds most interesting. So, as I've said, it's the women in the play who take on the role of historians, recording and lamenting the past. Act 4, scene 4, is a particularly significant locus for this, as all three, the Duchess of York, uh, the Queen Mother Elizabeth, and Margaret, uh, the widow of Henry VI, vie with each other in their grief, perhaps here drawing on the religious symbolism of the three women mourning at the foot of the cross. The language of the scene is strikingly stylized, turning on rhetorical patterns of repetition which give a sense of stasis, a lack of movement. Uh, this is Margaret. I had an Edward till a Richard killed him. I had a husband till a Richard killed him. Thou hadst an Edward till a Richard killed him. Thou hadst a Richard till a Richard killed him. Their conversation is anti-teleological um, on many different levels. Firstly, it does nothing to advance the plot. In fact, it interrupts the plot. Uh, the scene immediately before this uh, is one where Richard hears news of Richmond's advancing forces. And when Richard himself enters the scene of these three women, his question is apposite. Who intercepts me in my expedition? Who intercepts me in my expedition? Expedition there means both military plan but also haste expedite to do something in a hurry so he, he acknowledges that they're somehow uh, interrupting uh, the, the business uh, the business of the play in its depiction of female grief the scene has no historical precedent almost all the scenes of women 
uh, in Shakespeare's history plays are invented by Shakespeare. They don't form part of the, the historical sources he's using. So, so that, that makes the scene a kind of interpolation into unfolding historical events. But perhaps most significantly, in its language, as the uh, four lines I just read to you suggest strongly, the language privileges circularity and repetition over linearity and teleology. The rhetoric of uh, repetition, uh, of restating, uh, is the opposite of uh, teleology, of forward movement. Even at the point when the play is hurtling towards its conclusion, that's to say, there's a counter-movement, structurally and particularly linguistically and rhetorically, away from the future towards the past, appropriately capturing history's contradictory movements forwards and backwards. Here, we might try and draw in another influential critical reading of the history play sequence to counter that providentialist reading of Tilliard that we covered earlier. In his book, Shakespeare, Our Contemporary, Jan Cott offered a bleakly existentialist reading of the history plays, not surprising perhaps in a book which also links King Lear to Beckett's play Endgame and finally puts pay to the sentimental idea that Midsummer Night's Dream is a children's fairy tale. Cott's analysis of the history plays was ultimately, <coughs> for Shakespeare, history stands still. Every chapter opens and closes at the same point. The verbal index of this stasis is, for Cott, repeated names, Henry's and Edward's and Richard's constantly recurring, uh, passing across the stage. So the, the language of the, of the repeated language, the repeated names in history plays give a, uh, give a sense that nothing is changing. His visual index for this, Cott was a theatre director, was what he called the image of the grand mechanism, the grand mechanism, a kind of moving staircase which never got anywhere. Another anti-teleological reading, uh, which has been very influential on the stage. If you saw any of Michael Boyd's history sequence at the RSC, you might remember a kind of metal staircase in the middle of this courtyard uh, theatre, uh, a, a very definite um, borrowing, I think, from Cott. We can see the difference between Cott's argument and Tilliard's. The histories for Tilliard are about progress to an end point, the glorious reign of the Tudors. But for Cott, they're just about circularity, repetition and stasis. Queen Margaret then serves as a kind of ghost in the play, bringing with her the unquiet traces of the past. In Michael Boyd's production, her, during her first scene, she unwrapped from a bundle the skeleton of her son, lovingly reassembling the dry bones on a piece of cloth as she spoke. Quite literally, she carried the past on her back. Typically of Boyd's direction, that production was full of other ghosts. When Richard was crowned, a procession of his dead victims came to kneel before him. On the battlefield, he addressed his famous cry for a horse to the spirits of his parents who rejected him. Boyd's directorial ghosts here add their instinct for retrospection and looking backwards to Shakespeare's own. In a scene at the end of Richard III, just before the decisive battle, Richard is visited in a dream by the ghosts of those he has killed. They curse him and travel across the stage to Richmond, giving him their blessing. 
The dream sequence here reminds us of the people uh, in the play's past, but also back to an earlier dream in the play, that of Clarence, at the end of the first act. Again, the movement is backwards rather than forwards, recapping rather than going ahead. So, this lecture has been thinking about the ending of Richard III and the victory of Richmond in ethical and in political terms, but also in dramaturgical and structural ones. I've tried to think about the way Shakespeare's constructed the play to minimise the ending through his underplayed characterisation of Richmond and his insistence on an anti-teleological structure of memory and recollection. And I've suggested these might draw our attention away from an over-literal historical telos in which Richmond functions as saviour. But I've tried to point out that reading the folio, reading the histories in the folio, I think is quite a different experience uh, from reading them or experiencing them individually. Next week, then, uh, I'm going to talk about Pericles, a late play about travel, incest, and reconciliation. And the question I think I want to ask there is, why wasn't Pericles included in the first folio? Why wasn't Pericles included in the first folio? I hope I'll see you then. Thank you.